Welcome back, folks. Good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner Show. We're at the home of a WEAA, home of the Big 4-0 Birthday Bash, taking place Saturday, January the 28th. More information at WEAA.org. And on our way to this conversation, I want to remind you the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by MeQ, Baltimore's Credit Union, offering a full range of financial services. MeQ, Baltimore's Credit Union, has been helping its members and its community prosper for the last 80 years. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. Remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank. It belongs to you. Money comes back in the end. More information at www.mecu.com or steinershow.org is MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. So the consent decree has been signed, and uh, we are going to tackle some of that here on the show today. Um, the consent decree has been signed. We saw also what happened in Chicago uh, with uh, the report from the DOJ coming in about the abuse that Chicago police have foisted onto the mostly black and Latino communities in Chicago. Uh, and uh, we also saw that, uh, that the uh, Attorney General Lynch did not get the work done in time to deal with the police in Eric Garner's death in New York, and that will not uh, uh, be moving forward, I'm sure, under this new administration. But we do have the consent degree here. What will that mean for Baltimore? Um, and they've now appointed the judge who's going to monitor it. We'll talk about him and who he is. Uh, but there are also some larger questions. Uh, this new police poll came out from Pew, which is really fascinating about the attitudes of police about race and the differences between black and white officers and their views on race and policing, uh, which we'll talk a bit about as well during the course of this because that deeply affects how you change a department because it's more than just policies, it's the men and women and how they think and feel inside their department, uh, whether they're feeling threatened by life itself and where they had to patrol and not being supported and more. So um, uh, we are going to wrestle with all of that. Tara Huffman is with us. Tara Huffman, of course, is director of the Open Society Institute, Baltimore Criminal Justice, Criminal and Juvenile Justice Program. Tara, always good to have you back in the show. Welcome. Always good to be here, Mark. Thank you. Michael Wood Jr. is here. He's a retired Baltimore City police officer uh, and... Um, who has become a proponent of a, a new way of policing uh, in his re- young retirement. And, Michael, we've got to have you in the studio. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. And Raleigh Hayes joins us, organizer of Be More Block. Raleigh, welcome. Good to have you with us. Always glad to be here, Mark. And you all can join us here right now by phone at 410-319-8888. You can email us at talkatsteinershow.org. Tweet us at Mark Steiner. We do want to hear your thoughts. 410-319-8888. Uh, we want to hear your ideas about this consent decree and where it takes us. So, Tyler, me, you've, been, you've, been, you've been involved in this you know, from the beginning. So let me talk to you first about what you think the significance of this consent decree is and what questions have to be answered. Uh, so thanks again for the invitation and for hosting this conversation. I want to say at the outset that uh, the, a consent decree, whether it's here in Baltimore City or consent decrees that have been executed in other cities, um, it's very important that all of us understand both proponents of policing reform and folks who think that policing in Baltimore is just fine, is that the consent decree is not a panacea. Um, it is not going to solve everything, um, but it is an important tool. Um, it offers um, some leverage. Uh, it provides um, additional sets of eyes on what's going on here in Baltimore City. And so I think the importance of the consent decree is that you have in writing a laundry list, and it is very much a laundry list, you know, more than 200 pages of steps that the Baltimore City and the Baltimore City Police Department need to take to effect constitutional policing in Baltimore City, and that is an important standard. Um, Constitutional policing may not go as far as we need to go to really uh, achieve um, community-led, community-informed policing, but it at least um, takes us a long way towards making sure that people's constitutional rights are not being violated on a daily and consistent basis. And so that's one reason. You have it in writing. There's a laundry list. And as you said, there is a federal judge Um, who uh, has been appointed and a federal monitor will be be appointed to make sure that this laundry list of things actually gets paid attention to um, and that substantial progress is made on them. You know, this consent decree is for an initial term of five years. What's left to still be done, however, is the crux of this, which is police 
relations with community and vice versa. Um, there's still a lot that needs to be done to build community trust in the police. And I think that there's still a lot that needs to be done to transform the culture of policing in Baltimore City. That's not stuff that you accomplish because of a list of things on a page. That's stuff, that's hearts and minds stuff. That's stuff that happens over a course of years. That's stuff that happens over uh, the way people approach policing, both on the police side and the community side being transformed. There are certain officers who see themselves, we've heard the terms, as warriors and not guardians. And there are also things that we're asking any police department, and particularly the Baltimore Police Department, to do that actually the Baltimore Police Department should not be doing. And so when you introduce a law enforcement element into that thing, you end up with negative results. And so the consent decree is going to take us some ways down the road. It's not going to get us exactly where we need to be, but it is an extremely important tool. And more importantly, it's a lever that the city and the police department can be held accountable to. And, and so, and, and Michael, well, let me bring you in here. Because part of it is about culture and culture internally inside the police departments. And I think that one thing you see, there's a, a journal called Blue Nation Review, which is a, they put out a really interesting article, by the way. I mean, it's, it's, it's put out by police officers and people who represent police officers. And um, they looked at the 20 consent decrees all over America. This is 2015. And basically arguing that they weren't working. The consent decrees had very little effect, but we can get into that in a moment. But it all has to do with the internal culture. The Pew poll showed about, really got into the depth of, of, of police culture who feel embattled, who feel attacked, who feel unsure of their position in, in what they're supposed to do. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's a big piece of this. And I don't know how consent decrees address that and how easy it is to address that. Fundamentally, I would I, I would kind of disagree with with what both of you are saying and whether it's culture or it's not policy or that it's even a lever. This is a consent decree that starts off saying that they don't consent to what is in it and they're not responsible, that they didn't actually do these things. It contains a denial of the allegations themselves. Here's our list of DOJ uh, reforms going on. Cleveland, New Orleans, Seattle, Ferguson, Newark, L.A., Washington, Pittsburgh, Cincy, Detroit, Oakland, now Baltimore. All of these things run like the corners in Baltimore that we know of that are the exact same names in the exact same places that we've been talking about since we've been having these discussions, period. The consent decrees do absolutely nothing to reform policing in any city that we've ever had any consent decrees done in because it's not about culture of policing. It's about the culture of our society. Policing is built on three things, and that is the creation and maintenance of a slave class, the uh, protection of elite and white property, and the continued genocide of the Native American people. Everything policing does, does those things in one way, shape, or form. So until you take down those three things, you can never reform policing because it just simply doesn't matter if we say something like in the Cleveland consent decree, it says officers are now prohibited from pistol whipping suspects. Really? This was all prohibit it beforehand. These are all things that were legal beforehand. We have to ask ourselves in any single one of these, what's the enforcement mechanism? What's incentivizing the officer on the street? And who is actually being served in any of these reforms? And you'll see that in all their suggestions, we're not changing the paradigm whatsoever. So it doesn't matter if you tell your officers that they're supposed to be nice to the kid on the corner that's slinging. If you have a system that still puts him into the prison cell, puts him in a worse situation, and then has him coming out where we say, where's your resources? Get your stuff together. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And we've, we have a policing system and a society that is constructed in its policies and practices to take bootstraps away from everybody. So until you change that, all of this is surface stuff that's used to placate us in, in our environments. I mean, we're using the very same supervisor Advisors that executed all this stuff thinking we're going to lead on them to do the reforms. It doesn't really make any sense if we talk about what is actually happening. So uh, we can, let's, we, let's, let's battle that out a little bit. And, and Raleigh, let me jump in here, but let me just say that, that, that the top of what you're in the consent decree, now there's a debate about what that means. The city and the BPD deny the allegations in the complaint report. Nothing in the report was, uh -huh. wait one second, nothing in the report was intended to be used by third parties to create liability. That's the reason. Now, you can argue what that means. 
But part of what it means is that was put in there so the city wouldn't be sued. Mm-hmm. That's why that was in there. If you don't have truth, reconciliation, and reparations, you cannot go forward because you have not addressed what you've done. So what I'm saying is, is that that language is there so the city can't get sued. It only goes so far. You can't say, I'm going to admit this, but not legally. So, well, so well, that's what they did, though. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's important to recognize like the legal aspect um, of like how we operate in society currently, right? Which is like understanding the city did that so they can't be sued. They don't want to take fault, right? But then there's the reality of just like living in Baltimore City or any of any city really as a black person and an oppressed person, right? Um, is understanding that there has been harm committed, right? The city is responsible for it, even if they didn't. Like, if, you know, Mayor Pugh, Mayor Rollins, like, didn't specifically order that a police officer go beat that person or do that thing, right? They're still responsible, and there has to be some process um, of reparations because that is ultimately why the feeling in the city and the community is that this consent decree isn't worth the paper it's written on. You think it's not worth the paper it's written on? I didn't say that. I what did you say? That's the feeling in the community, right? Like, I've talked to numerous people who still don't see this as a solution. Right, because it doesn't it doesn't repair the harm of the people of the families who have lost loved ones to police. It doesn't repair the harm to the folks that have gotten beat by police. Right? Like it doesn't stop those officers from still uh operating within the Baltimore Police Department. It does not uh in any way um provide any comfort to those families. Right. And that is the that is at the heart of the distrust between um community distrust as to the police department, right? Um, I will say that I do, I don't think the consent decree is perfect, personally, right? Like, I don't think it's perfect. Um, in some ways, it's a tool, but for me, it's a tool of we're just going to, like, within probably a month or two, we're going to be like, hey, you violated that thing, and it's just going to be another, another notch on our belt to show why policing doesn't work and why the current system doesn't work, right? So that's how it's a tool for us. It is not a tool because we think that it's actually going to be enforced and actually going to change things. Um, that's just not a belief that we've ever had um, because it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked anywhere that we can find, like, where it actually truly worked, where black people are safe. Um, so, Tara, let me ask you to kind of mm-hmm. thoughtfully come back to what you just heard. Sure. So I I don't disagree with anything that either Mark or Ralik have said, I guess. Um, and maybe this is my legal training getting the best of me. It's just that I understand that a consent decree is not designed to do any of those things. Right. Um, but I don't think that a consent decree is therefore worthless. I think that it's designed to accomplish certain things. It will not accomplish those things just because you've put words on paper. There has to be an enforcement mechanism to make sure that the things a consent decree is designed to do actually happen. You're not going to get reparations in a consent decree. Nope. You're not going to shift the paradigm of policing and where it originally came from in the consent decree. But the U.S. Constitution does provide for certain things. And the purpose of a DOJ investigation and in the subsequent consent decree is to make sure that the policing at least rises to what they call a a standard of constitutional policing. Now, constitutional policing still does not get us where Mark and Ralik are talking about. We need to go as a community. But I think it does provide, one, a tool. I think, you know, I sort of agree with Ralik in that it provides a tool that now if they step out of line, if they violate any part of the consent decree, we can publicly now, through a legal process, said you messed up. And we can the enforcement mechanism has to kick in. If you read through the consent decree and it is not light reading, let me tell you, um, you will see that there are a number of provisions in there that now will provide some more sunshine on what the police department is doing. Now, yes, they have to gather the data as required. They have to post the data as required. But these are things there are some things in here. That is like, well, duh, you know, that should have been happening all all along. But there are other things in here that the police department was never required to do, never expected to do. And now they have to do that. And those additional things where there's gathering data, posting data, things of that nature are going to be additional things for the community to be able to say, hey, you have to do that. So you you need to do that and you need to provide whatever resources. And if they fail to do that, there's a federal judge who doesn't who isn't into, you know, doesn't have, you know, 
anything, uh, you know, to prove with the Baltimore Police Department or anything to prove with the mayor and the city council or even anything to prove with the community mm -hmm. who basically says, look, this is the document in front of me. This is what I'm supposed to enforce. You're not doing A, B, and D. Do A, B, and D. Or now you are subject to litigation again because you're not subject to litigation until they violate the terms of the, um, the consent decree. Back then, I'm going to go to the phones here. Lakeisha and Tom, the first to call us up, are going to come right to your calls. Yeah, I would just like to know, I mean, I was a supervisor, commander in the Baltimore Police Department, and I don't know of anything in there that I wasn't supposed to do in 2009 when I was first proponent to a sergeant or 2003 when I first became a police officer. I don't know of anything in there that wasn't rules that we have already had in place, and we don't have an enfor enforcement mechanism. What we're really doing is we're bringing in appointed people, and appointed people continue to serve that fundamental root of power in the oligarchy. So right now we're going to spend more money, we're going to bring in more resources, and we're going to call in the policing experts who have set up this entire system The all along their career careers are predicated upon this system working, hiding the information that they've done the entire time all along, and no supervision is still taking any accountability for this. And we're thinking that the enforcement mechanism and what's going to pick this forward is those very same supervisors that will b cover up the brutal murder uh, of Tyrone West. Like, these are the very same people. There's no reason to believe that anything will change from this because those things literally aren't in here that we need to do that. What you also end up saying is that all those other 20 consent decrees, that those people were complete failures and never did anything and, and well, didn't actually do it. They were complete failures. Well, you would have to because there's no, no. measurable differences in any of these cities. a difference between a consent decree, which is a legal document negotiated between a DOJ and a community that is enforced by a federal judge and the political act of changing the nature of how you manage the police departments. They're, they're separate things. I, I would disagree that, because you have the very same people doing and implementing these things. So all these other cities that we've done before, we have policing looking the exact same way as it did before the consent decree. So we would, we would, if we were going to have change here, it's like you're saying, we have to take a whole new perspective and community has to stand up and use this only as that tool that you were talking about to say, this is on paper, we have this and we have to force this in a whole different way than every other single DOJ has been. And I, I would not disagree with that. I, I think that if you speak to anyone who's on the DOJ, team they will tell you that the level of involvement mm -hmm. from the community in Baltimore City and the level of feedback that they got from the um, the community in Baltimore City allowed them to negotiate a consent decree that is more comprehensive and more community informed than any consent decree in recent history that's that's just they've said that publicly and and OSI Baltimore has been fortunate enough to be able to partner with some community groups to help make that happen, not to the degree that we would have liked to. But we know that there have been meetings after meetings and phone calls and there are people in the community who have personal and professional relationships with the investigation team um, so that this consent decree is long and it's different in the sense that it is more community informed now. Just as the community stepped up during the investigation and stepped up as much as they could during the consent decree negotiation process, that same level, in fact, I would probably say 10 times that level, now needs to happen on the enforcement side. If any of us sleep on this, it's signed, a judge has been appointed, they're going to appoint a federal monitoring team, and so now we can just sort of say, "Okay, it's taken care of." I right. promise no. you, we will. You're, we will see no change five years from now, ten years from now, twenty years from now. The nature of a of a bureaucracy is to protect itself. I know that for a fact. You try to change one part of the system, it morphs into something. It's like whack a mole, right? right. But. The reason you still get the whack-a-mole every once in a while is because you stay diligent. And so I'm not saying that this is something that because it's on paper and because it's been signed and even after it is, an order is issued that everything is well. It is not well. This is just the beginning and this is a tool that can be used to bring about the kind of policing that we want in Baltimore City. I think it is an important tool. I do not think it is the only tool. And I am totally fine with some people in the community saying, 
yeah, this is not our strategy. We have a whole nother strategy. As long as there are some people in the community who understand this is the strategy and are willing to put in some energy while other energy is going into other strategies, because you're going to need more than one. Amen to that. 410-319-8888. Let's go to the phones. Lakeisha, you're on the air. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning, Lakeisha. <laughs> so I have to turn the station. I see that y'all are on. I know that since y'all were talking about Martin Luther King, I just want to comment real quick about Martin Luther King. I believe that um, he lived his purpose. Was He had a dream, and he lived it out. And and I believe that he left this, this earth with, with a... With a legacy that's still going on today, so we celebrate him. We still acknowledge him. We still remember him, and I think that's a great and wonderful thing. And it, I think that during that time, we had needed a leader for us because during that time, with times we were going and God raised up him, and I think at that time we he was needed. All right. So he did what he was put here to do. Appreciate, I appreciate the call. Though we have moved on to a new topic, we're talking about the consent decree this hour. But I, I'm glad you got a chance to, to have your thoughts on, on King brought to the airwaves, mm-hmm. because I think he'd have a lot to say about these consent decrees <laughs> if he was here at this moment as well. Um, thank you, Lakeisha, so much. 410-319-8888. Tom, you're on the air. Welcome. Oh, good morning, Mark. Good morning, guests. Morning. Happy Martin Luther King Day to all of you. To you, too. Uh, I was wondering, uh, with consent decree in Baltimore and one pending or ready to be implemented in Chicago, what sort of synergism could occur with those two consent decrees? In other words, like if we accomplish something here in Baltimore that was positive, could Chicago turn around and say, well, they couldn't do it there, or vice versa? How are those things going to work out? Are we going to get something better out of those two consent decrees, or are they going to cancel each other out, or are they going to complement each other? I don't think they actually are going to touch each other at all. Right, that would be correct because um, Baltimore, yeah, Baltimore City is its own jurisdiction. Chicago is its own jurisdiction. The administration of of those two police forces are is totally different. And so, yes, you have the um, common element of the DOJ being involved with both of them, but the DOJ is not going to leverage one against the other they're going to do what they do in chicago they're going to do what they do in baltimore city and and there's not if if there were some good things going on baltimore city <laughs> i i i don't mean to laugh if there were some good things going on you could you could imagine baltimore city reaching out to chicago and saying hey I see you have a best practice there. Could you come to Baltimore and show us what you're doing or Chicago? Could we? So there may be some sort of um, cross-pollination or exchange sua sponte on their own between more than one city that happens to be under consent decree. But in terms of a legally or formally, no, there will be no exchange. And one has nothing to do with the other. So, folks, we're going to take a brief break and then come right back. Uh, stay with us and uh, join us here at 410-319-8888. By phone, tweet us at Mark Steiner. Email us at talk at steinershow.org. What does this consent decree mean to you? Uh, we want to hear if you think it's hogwash, if it has water. Does it mean something in terms of how we can control policing in the city? What does it mean by civilian participation in control of that policing? 410-319-8888. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do not go away. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner. We're here with Tara Huffman, who is director of the Open Society Institute's Baltimore Criminal and Juvenile Justice Program. Michael A. Wood, Jr., retired Baltimore City police officer, Marine Corps veteran, uh, who has become a proponent of a new era of policing and the way we police uh, in this country, as we were just talking here, is also among the veterans who went to Standing Rock and Raleigh Kays, who's an organizer for Be More Block. And you all at 410-319-8888. Write to us here at talkatstandershow.org by email. Uh, tweet us at Mark Steiner. We want to know what you think about the consent decree, where you think it will take us. Uh, so let's just explore for a moment where you think, before we jump into the limitations, which I want to do, I'm curious where you think this consent decree will take us. What will be, what could, what could be the most positive outcome hmm. of this consent decree? What would it take to even get there? Before we talk about the political things we've talked about on the show a lot, which has to do with all the other political issues that you were raising, I think, Michael, earlier, that are part of a political struggle to change what, uh, the, the nature of the society and policing. But what is it we would think would be a success? Mm-hmm. What do we have to keep a lookout for? Ralik? Um, For me, that would be, A, this decree 
convinces folks who we haven't been able to convince to move that policing and the way we view public safety and structural racism in this country needs to change, and it brings more people into the fold. And then B, um, it allows us to fire a whole bunch of Baltimore City police officers. You said fire. Mm-hmm. Well, that but that but that's not remember, but, but that's not in the consent decree. That's not going to happen inside this consent decree. Well, no, but I think it'll allow the if for infractions um, based on the way the enforcement is supposed to happen theoretically. You know, an officer should get reprimanded, and hopefully, uh, we'd be able to recommend firing with the uh, civilian review board and the uh, oversight committee of the civilian review board that will review it and hopefully give it more power. Well, so ta- this is, of course, this is a best case scenario situation. I'm kind of dreaming here, but I can hope. What's in the consent decree about civilian review boards and civilians being on the disciplinary boards? So there are. Those are two different things. One, the consent decree establishes a five-member mem- uh, five civilian review authority um, who is not over the police department, however. Um, that authority is really over the civilian review board, um, and their job is to look at the way civilian review and accountability outside of the police department happens right now in Baltimore City, identify places where that needs to change, and then recommend um, changes. They are also empowered to review current policies and practices and recommend new policies or reform policies and practices. Uh, the other mechanism is that there is language in there, and it's, you know, language that, again, you know, just uh, uh, reinforces that, you know, the consent decree is not the end all and the be all because there's language in there that does say that uh, on the police trial boards, there shall be two civilians with voting power, but then there's a comma, and it says, as permitted by law, which means the consent decree does not have the, the DOJ does not have the authority to say, Baltimore, you must put civilians on your trial boards. That's something that has to happen at state legislation. Um, but if that state legislation gets passed, then the consent decree kicks in and says, okay, now you, those two civilians on your trial board have to be there and they have to have voting power. And so, so, and, and so I actually had a question about that. Yes. Um, what happens when the consent decree comes in conflict with the FOP contract, which as we know, that's what we're talking as about. As far as I understand, right. the new one hasn't been signed yet, but the last one uh, forbid that exact thing. Well, yeah. so if I'm the mayor, <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Uh, this provides the mayor, because <laughs> we have a mayor, and she's going to be wonderful. This provides the mayor with an additional tool to go to the negotiating table with to say, look, we are already on the cusp of being in violation with this thing, and it hasn't even been, the order hasn't even been down yet because there's legislation at the state level that says those folks can be on the trial boards as long as the local is okay with it. We know that the FOP doesn't want it, and currently in contract, that's not allowed. But the contract is being negotiated, and so this is another chip, I think, for um, so the administration in, in the to right. use to make sure that those civilians actually get that that contract. Because I don't, I don't know actually, and maybe there's a legal scholar out there who can let me know. I don't know what happens if the contract and the consent decree say two different things. And, and, and so it's because the trial board internally, Michael, what is that, that that's where the police police are, are having an internal trial. They can either be exonerated or thrown off the force. Right. So right? The, bi- the big problem with it is, is that we have right now what is allowed is appointed individuals. Appointed uh-huh. people are absolutely no different than the police commissioner or anybody else that's serving at the will of the mayor. We take this power away from the mayor and we don't hold the mayors accountable for this. The mayor has appointed the police commissioner. So I, what I do is I advocate for moving your concept of civilian authority all the way up to the top where it's not the executive wing, the enforcement wing of the mayor. It's actually led by the people because what you are continuing to be told is how you will be policed. We will not get any progress until we ask 
ask you what you want your police department to do to serve you. Until we get to that point, all of our all of our reforms are for naught. So what I hope is is this really goes to is continuing the education and push to put civilian authority in charge. There is no reason why a police department is an enforcement mechanism for four year goals of a mayor trying to achieve higher political office. That's literally what it is. This is an enforcement tool of the oligarchy. So until we make it an enforcement tool of the people, you're not getting anywhere. Well, I mean, I, and I would agree and disagree. I mean, I think that to say you're not getting anywhere, I think it's a stretch. To say that... This okay, is, you have no evidence that it would lead anywhere because the history of this country so, shows that until we do that, we're not going anywhere. Right. I know the history of this country pretty well. Yeah. I've been in the struggle for a long time. So I... I, I and, and what I'm saying is, is that this is, without this DOJ consent decree, we would have lost a tool in the battle to push it forward from the outside and the inside. And I think that that's the battle from the outside is what you're talking about, which has to happen, which has to be civilian control of the police, which has not happened. Um, and I think that's really critical to have happen. And who gets, we raised the issue in here last week, who gets appointed to that trial board and who does the appointing? I have that. How answer. does that person get This there? is my research. Right? I'm a police scientist. This is all I do. <laughs> No, so, saying, but that the, as far as I understand, the appointing to the trial board is done by the commission. Um, and it doesn't right. have anything restricting retired police officers, which would technically be civilians, from serving, from my understanding. Right. Uh, and Relik and I, we've actually, we've talked about this before, and I got this answer from Dwayne Davis on how you actually construct a board like this. It was his idea that you do it like a jury pool where you have people that are educated, they're in voluntary service, and they come in and serve for a few years to guide the police department forward with a police panel. What we end up doing is saying, I don't want to trust a community of our citizens. Instead, I'm going to trust Kevin Davis. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. No, I, we would agree with that. I no, think, if I it's think we all agree be, with that. Yeah, we all agree with if, that. If you're yep. going to have civilian voting members and they do truly have to be civilians, and I like the idea of uh, you know doing it like a jury pool as opposed to you know appointing someone and then they just appointing two people and they sit there for too long. Um, well, I actually think this is an opportunity to act as a um, not just an enforcement mechanism, but if you want the community to learn more about policing and how policing occurs, you actually want that to be sort of a rotating seat so you have more and more members of the community who get an opportunity to participate at that level. So um, let me go right to you here, uh, Relief, but a lot of people are calling in. I want to get to their phone calls um, and to hear what they have to say. Um, and I think that this is what I'm, what I'm saying here is I think this is the place where we're, in a, we're, we're A, in the middle of the General Assembly session. <laughs> Where stuff can change. Stuff can change, yes. Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. B, the mayor is in the middle of negotiations with the FOP. That's where the community has to push on what the people want to see in this agreement with the FO, FOP, which is a more civilian-led review board uh, and trial board that is democratically, democratic, with democratic participation. But that's part of the struggle that has to happen yeah. that is built all around this, I think. What, Raleigh, you were going to say what? Then we're going to hit the phones. Say, I, I really do appreciate the jury pool idea as opposed to an election because elections can be bought, um, as we've seen, obviously. Um, and so I really do like the idea of, some, of an impartial mechanism that allows uh, civilians, like true citizens of this city, um, control over the police. Um, and then I would also like to add on that there are also, I mean, and we're going to talk about this later, I think you said, there are some limitations. Um, and criticisms I have of the actual consent decree. Yes. Well, let's, well, let's get into that in a moment. But yeah. Let me go to the phones first. So 410-319-8888. Chris, you're on the air. Welcome. Hope all is well. Happy Martin Luther King Day. Same to you. My question is, how do we balance the consent decree with the need for increased or improved law enforcement? I mean, I find it very ironic that both Baltimore and Chicago have the consent decrees. Yep. Uh, Chicago had a horrendous number of, of violent crimes, specifically murders. Baltimore had almost a record. Um, and so how do we get this balance with a city that's becoming increasingly violent or harder to live in for the regular citizen and to make it an attractive and a consent decree? It's almost like... We're, there's a push and pull. I don't know where to balance it. So, well, and good morning. Me, I think the first issue is, why do you think police 
to solve poverty and quality of life issues. Well, no, no, yes, that's not, what he's saying is, let's, let's deal directly with what he just said. Mm-hmm. What Chris is saying directly, we have 319 people murdered in the streets of Baltimore last mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There were three to four or five times that many people who were shot and wounded in this city last year. Mm-hmm. That's a battlefield. Yes. On anybody. Well, so the question is, is and it's not, so, uh, yes. But I, have, maintain my, I maintain the same position I maintain always on, on your show, Mark, which is why do we think about public safety in the sense of policing, right? Because why are these people committing these crimes? Like, why do people have to shoot each other, right? Like, why, why are these things happening? And why do we think police and policing is going to solve these issues? Because we have, what, the third largest force in the country? So, that, yeah, but, all right, so let, let me push back a little bit, Riley. Let me push back a little bit. I'm trying to, because I'm trying to deal with the heart of what Chris is asking us here. Mm-hmm. So, while we are battling to end the conditions and end poverty and racism in America, which is the struggle we're in, what do you do? What he's asking, you, well, the police are part of this. What do you do mm-hmm. to ensure that 300 black lives? Are not lost in the streets of Baltimore. So I mean, that's see, what he's I don't asking. Think police are a part of it. I mean, I think yeah, most people this. think police are a part of it, but I think we could actually solve these issues without involving police, right? So if the mayor took some of the police's budget and funded job programs, a la, uh, you know, Great Recession, Great Depression, and government work programs, it'd be pretty easy to stop people from doing things because they would have funds to take care of themselves and their families. That is. I still maintain that is one of the number one reasons people sell drugs. People do things that result in crime. I right? think I say, I say that because as a person who grew up poor, who lives in the hood, these are my friends we're talking about. These are people I know, people I grew up with. Right? So I'm speaking from experience. Um, and I understand people want to be safe, and I get that. Right? Like, you have every right to want to be safe. But to do that requires more than police on the corners because... Police haven't stopped people from getting shot. That doesn't happen. Right? Like, somebody got shot yesterday at 5 o'clock in the afternoon in an area where I'm pretty sure there was police presence. If I can just jump in here, I think that um, Chris's question, I, I appreciate his question because I think it raises that there are many people in the community who, who um, and it, has, it, it is presented to us as a false choice that you either have good policing, but then crime is running amok, or you have unconstitutional policing, but at least, you know, there's police in the community and crimes are being solved. That's a false choice. The reason why our, I would submit that one of the reasons, not the reason, because I think that Raleigh's point is a critical point, and yep. I think that we need, yep. we need to get to a place where we, the community is not as dependent upon law enforcement to solve these issues, that there is a role for law enforcement. That role needs to be very clearly defined and limited and then let the community take care of everything else. But one of the reasons you have such a high murder rate and a low clearance rate on those murders is because there's no trust between the police and the community. So you cannot have ineffective, unconstitutional, racially biased, violent policing, and somehow all of that's going to equal low murder rate, low crime rate, safe community. They're one and the same. If you improve policing and the way police do their job in response to community, you're going to see the crime rate go down because now there will be a better partnership between the police and the community where right now you have communities that feel like they're under siege. They don't trust the the police at all. And even if they saw what happened, they're not about to say anything about it because they have no trust whatsoever that one, it's going to make a difference or two, they're not going to be retaliated against or three, they don't like the police anyway. So we'll just do it with this street justice. Y'all go on back down to right. central headquarters and we'll take, you know, we'll handle this with two more mortars. That's going to happen. Right. So it's not it's it's the same thing. And so to say, because we're cracking down on unconstitutional policing, all of a sudden we have to sit back and accept that the murder rate's going to go up. That's a false choice. And we need to not believe that. And we can't let anyone feed us that line because that's that's not a true thing. Michael, on the way back to the phones. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, we actually know why crime is caused. 
It's caused by economic conditions, lack of opportunity, and marginalization. So if we think about policing as the, as the way we're going to control that, we are trying to solve violence with violence. Any enforcement is inherently violent on its own, and violence can only temporarily halt other violence. It will continue that escalating chain. So we have to address the social and economic conditions that get people there, just like how a, a Syrian terrorist I mean, or, or, or uh, ISIS or something, they become that way because they have no economic opportunities, ways to advance in society. So we know this. And the second thing is environmental poisoning. Uh, the lead uh, reduction in New York is what led to the dramatic crime reduction in the 90s and led to the violent crime reduction all through uh, since the 70s since we got lead out of, out of gas. So if we control environmental poisoning and actual causations, because we are constantly focused on symptoms. So we're saying, how do we lock this guy up for committing a robbery? And like Relique said, is we're never saying, why did this individual commit a robbery? And what things can we do to prevent them from being in a situation where they need to commit a robbery in order to survive or they think that's the best path? And if our answer, it's like the death penalty, our answer for you killing is to kill you, it will never logically make sense and we can never get out of that circle. Let me open the phones at 410-319-8888. Awusu, you're on the air. Welcome. Good, morning, Mark, and good morning to your guest. Uh, this, this reminds me, this whole police situation in a way reminds me of the lead problems in Flint because it was just indicative of lead problems all over the country. And it's the same with, with this police situation. Uh, down here in Baton Rouge, there's Evangeline Parish, which is like a county. And they're under consent decree for locking people up uh, for, for no reason, for having all kinds of laws like having to wear reflective gear at night or get locked up. Uh, so this is an endemic uh, across the country. My question, though, is, uh, is with Sessions coming in as Attorney General, assuming he'll make it because of all the Republican votes, what difference, if any, will that make? Because he's already spoken that he doesn't really believe uh, that the uh, consent decrees with police uh, is, is, is viable or is something that should be done. Go ahead. Well, that's one of the reasons why um, it was important that this get done uh, before January 20th, um, uh, before uh, um, Trump is sworn in um, and there's some sort of, you know, things in the air that on the you know day of his inauguration, he'll get a certain number of appointments um, in his cabinet and sessions, maybe one of them. Once the we're not totally out of the woods yet. I just want to be very clear on that. But my understanding is that now that it's been filed with the courts and it's a joint agreement between the city and the DOJ, it's with the courts now. Right. Um, and Sessions cannot control an appointed judge to the federal court because those judges are appointed for life. So he can't remove him. He can't. I mean, no one who's sitting as a, the U.S. attorney general can touch that federal judge. Now, on the enforcement side. In addition to the federal judge, that federal judge will have at his or her disposal a, a monitor, a federal monitor. You can read the consent decree and see how they talk about a monitoring team. That monitoring team doesn't answer to us, the community, doesn't answer to the city, doesn't answer to DOJ. He or she or they answer to the judge. So now that it's with the court and it's with the judge, it will be very, very hard. I'm not going to say impossible. I'm not convinced of that just yet. But it will be very, 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 very hard for any U.S. attorney general, be it Sessions or anybody else, to undo this, which is why it was so important that we get it filed with the court before there was a change in administration. So let me jump into the phone. Just come right back. 410-319-8888. Thanks for that response uh, and the question. Cindy, you're on the air. Welcome. Hi, I'm at the MLK parade, but I just wanted to say I would love if the Civilian Review Authority, which I hear you is over the board, would look into the fact that cops never, ever let people know that they are allowed to make a complaint. So I would say at least allowed to make a complaint. the actual bad behavior never gets a first complaint. And um, if that could be addressed um, as part of this consent decree, that would be great. Is that in this consent decree? I don't think that's a, there's no specifics like that. Right? No, 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 no. There's language, and I would have to take a minute to find it. But there's there is there's like one two pages I think that talk about the steps that both the police department, um, well, it doesn't speak to the civilian review board, so it's the police department have to take to make um, complaints, the forms um, more accessible to the public. Um, right now, she's absolutely correct. 
a police officer is certainly not about to tell you you can file a complaint. And we have anecdotal story after anecdotal story. And by anecdotal, I don't mean that untrue. I just mean we don't have statistics that say people walk into police districts all the time to file a complaint and they're totally given the runaround. Uh, And so there is language in the consent decree that talks about steps that the BPD has to take to make the complaint process more accessible to the public. So there is some language. Again, not a panacea, but it's in writing. There is, means literally A, B, C, D, D, things that they have to do to make that process more accessible to Tara, the public. Tara, like this is another one of those things that we, we are assuming doesn't take place and we're projecting out there that these rules weren't in place. As I was a shift commander in the Eastern District, I handled citizen complaints every single day and I handed out the proper information of civilian review boards and stuff like that every single day. And you know why? I didn't care. It had no teeth. It would never touch me. Follow all the complaints you want. But does this give a teeth? No. Well, wait, yes or no? I think it gives, again, it's a third eye. That federal monitor mm-hmm. is going to be a third eye on the process. But that's no teeth, and there's no well, enforcement I mean, mechanism. There's no metrics. Well, there is an enforcement mechanism because I'm the federal monitor. I'm supposed to be watching. Now, again, I want to be clear. The federal monitor is not God. <laughs> the federal monitor is not God. Um, and so... He or she will only be able to respond to what he or she can see or what he or she can measure. So I'm very, very clear on that. But this is going to be one of those things that they, I'm going to say they because it's a team of people, they are going to be looking to see, did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? And it's written into the consent decree that it's not just going to be, hey, BPD, did you do this? And the BPD, oh, yeah, we do it all the time. Then they're going to have to go back to the community and say, hey, community, do you see the BPD doing this. There's something written into the consent decree where they have to survey the community. I think it's an annual basis to see all the stuff that BPD says they're doing. Community, are you seeing the difference? And if those two things don't match up, that's going to give the federal monitor something that he or she can take to the court to say, yeah, I got this, but the community's not seeing the effect of it, so I think we should tweak it this way. So, uh, but if the tweak has to be to have actual teeth, and that tweak is not an available option, because the teeth, are, they're, you're only saying whether they're going to ask. They, they ask all the time. It's just they don't care about the answer. So if the judge tells the police department, hey, you're not properly gathering this data, they'll say, okay. And then two years later, when they check, we still haven't gathered the data. We're supposed to do these stop receipts, and we've supposed to be doing them for the last decade. I did maybe 10% of them. Because you can't watch my interactions on the street. The most powerful person in the entire country is a local police officer. They can enforce every single law, and they have almost no oversight. So, like, if you do, those just aren't, it's teeth to enforce monitoring, not teeth to enforce changes. But I think the monitoring actually can, maybe teeth is not the best word, but I think the monitoring is actually leverage to get us to Yeah, I just change. really want us to be careful. So, like in Cincinnati, after seven years of this, they said that this is the most successful police reforming ever taken place in this country by doing variable things like that, half of that maybe, of in the Baltimore consent decree. And we're not going to make any arguments that Cincinnati has improved at all at this point in time because the stats and metrics actually haven't improved. So we have to literally get down, measure those things, and see if they're actually improving. See if we're actually continuing to put people in uh, prison cells in these certain neighborhoods, in the exact same neighborhoods where we continue to take resources away, and then we put more police there. I mean, the community, significant amounts of community members think, because society has taught them, that more police is the answer, as we were just talking about before, and this is kind of doing the same thing. It's bringing the more in. It's just a fundamentally wrong paradigm of policing. More police are not the answer, though this consent decree has, and I'm not sanguine about this, I understand everything we're saying here, but this consent decree has more teeth in it than any of this consent decree ever signed Agreed. in the United States Agreed. so far. 410, and we come right back to Raleigh, 410-319-8888. Avis, you're on the air. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for calling. Uh, I am so appreciative of the Department of Justice and the work that they've done and the consent decree and the work that the uh, city officials are going to put that um, into place. However, it is like maybe 5 or 10% of the solution that is needed to change the dynamics of violence and over-incarceration in Baltimore City. It is almost a distraction. We've given it so much attention, and the real 
changes, the causes of violence, and the reparations, lives, generations of lives, have been destroyed. Communities have been destroyed. Policing is not going to change that. And so I'm asking uh, officials and uh, the media to focus on things that will solve the problem. I don't see very much of that being discussed. I heard Raleigh struggling really hard to make the point that maybe half of the police budget needs to go someplace else because that's not going to solve the problem. So I don't know if that's a question or a suggestion or a comment, but thank you for the time. It's a little bit of all. I appreciate the call. Raleigh, why don't you jump in? We only have a few minutes left. Um, I just want to say that, you know, that, again, we have to relook at how we view public safety and also keep an open mind for what tools we have. We all know what, all of us that are on the same page know what our end goal is, but we don't know how we're going to get there, right? Like, if we knew how we were going to get there, this would already have been done. We would have figured it out. And so I always try keeping an open mind and leaving all tools and options on the table. This consent decree is just another tool and another option we're going to use. Um, it might not be used in the way that folks intended, uh, like around policing. It can be used as an organizing tool around changing people's minds. It can be used as a as a tool to hopefully in, one of the enforcement actions might be to remove money, hopefully not give more money. We don't, we don't know what's going to happen and what we're going to argue in court or whatever. Um, and I just would say just be prepared to keep an open mind and be ready to twist all tools and advantages to in all situations, two hours in. So, uh, and we are just about out of time here. This has been a great discussion. And I think that one of the things that we've talked about in this show a lot uh, and we'll continue talking about is um, what it would mean to have a different public safety model in Baltimore to start with. Um, decreasing the police budget, putting that money into community workers and healers who can begin the work of stopping the violence in ways the police could never do. The police are there to arrest the bad guys who kill the people we love. The police, but they cannot stop people from killing the people we love. That's gonna be done inside the community. So if you had out for justice women, safe streets workers, health workers, community healers, mediators inside the community, why you're using money to develop communities but people to work so poverty can end I mean, that's the secret to kind of ending, I think, the violence that goes along with the reforming department, which we didn't get into today, which we need to get into, which is the question of uh, what I'd like to talk about soon again is this new Pew poll that came out that mm-hmm. interviewed people or police around the country um, is how do we stop police from being physically and verbally abusive to people in the community? Mm-hmm. That's one of the biggest subjects in my mind, that... No Boundaries Coalition put the report out about that, which means it was one of the most telling reports I've ever seen uh, about police community interactions. And so we'll pick up on that the next time we get together. This has been a really great discussion. I want to thank uh, the three of you for being here. Um, uh, it's always good to have you in the studio with us. Tara Hoffman, great the work you do with OSI. Thank you so much for being here. Michael Wood, always good to have your voice on the air with us. And my dear brother, Bradley Case, thank you so much for being part of this as well. Thank you, Mark. See you later. Thank you. Thank you. And we have to, uh, oh, I'm sorry, another call just came in. I'm sorry we can't get to that call because we're plumb out of time up against it. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our research assistant, or, or, I mean, our assistant producer is Nadi, uh, Nadia Ramlagan. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. Podcast at Steiner Show. Share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or use your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm Mark Steiner. Stay involved. Take care. <laughs>